Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Like, is it a meter and you had to resolve the melody? I know, but I chose not to. Mm. And that was really up to me. That I is think. your choice. You didn't, you didn't ask me if I wanted our intro to be a song? You could tell from my eyes, though. Couldn't you? No. You could tell from my eyes. I mean, I could tell from the way that you you just like made it a song, like you just went right into it. Uh, yeah. I mean, from the singing, you could tell I wanted to sing. You mean? <laughs> yes, correct. I agree. Yeah, you started singing, so I assumed that your heart was overflowing with song. Why are we and in it such spilled a, out of your mouth? Why are we in such? That's how all singing works. Uh, why are we in such a joyous mood? Well, friends, it's one of our funnest episodes that we get to do, or it, most fun. This is untenable. <laughs> This tenor is untenable. It's an untenable tenor. I can't. It was 80 degrees yesterday, Justin. And I, know. I was, I, it was, that was so good for my mood. Fool's, fool's summer, they call it, Sydney. And, a fool, fool's, fool's spring. Then it was 37 this morning. I know. It's unthinkable. Okay. Okay. Well, that's the price you pay for living in a place that has four seasons. I, mean, I don't think it's the. I don't think it's that simple. Mm, you think there's other complicating factors? I think there might be. Impossible to say. Um, <laughs> no, it's possible impo- to say uh, and to predict and to address. Um, but we're not doing a podcast about climate change no, right now. <laughs> we're doing a podcast about your medical questions. Here's your first one. Are you ready to expand your mind, Sid? Go full galaxy brain on all these and answer them. Okay, I will do. My, I will do my best. Hello, Sydney and Justin. Hello. Hi. I have a weird medical question for you. There's been a lot of coverage lately about lots of popular chocolate brands having high levels of lead and cadmium in them. I eat a lot of chocolate, and now I'm worried I'm going to get lead poisoning. Is there a way to test and find out if I have lead or cadmium in high levels? I've heard there's this thing called chelation therapy for getting heavy metals out of the body. Does everyone with a sweet tooth need to go get this now? Thanks. Katie. Um, You know what? This is one of those questions where I thought, oh, I bet there was a news report that sort of sensationalized some sort of study, and the study was taken out of context and extrapolated to an extent that it really wasn't, you know, that like the the conclusions of the media maybe outpaced the conclusions of the authors. That's usually the case, right, with Mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I went and read the study and some of the reviews and some of the, like, thoughts about it, Mm -hmm. and 
there, there is some truth here. So they. I wish you all had been next to Sydney on the couch when she was researching this, because I just heard a series of like increasingly distressed. Mm, mm. I I like dark chocolate a lot, and I wouldn't say I'm a very regular. I don't have a. I don't have much of a sweet tooth. The salty is my problem, not yeah. the sweet. Um, but not, not a problem. Your preference. You're right. You're your right. Delight. The the salty is the thing that that I will just keep eating because I love it so much. I can, you know, the sweet I don't always crave. So anyway, um, there, there is, there, there was a study that was done, I think originally released in December of last year, and then there have been some more articles uh, written about it in the last couple months. So this mm-hmm. is pretty recent stuff that showed specifically dark chocolate had higher than what we consider preferable <laughs> levels of cadmium and lead, and... I try not to think too much about the fact that there are totally copacetic levels of cadmium and lead. Well, there aren't with lead. That's part of the thing. No it's like, lead. how much lead is okay? Well, none. So, I mean, no part lead. of it Thank is like, you. we don't want you exposed to it, because I mean, they're like, they're heavy metals, and obviously, if they accumulate in levels that are high enough, they can cause you health problems. They can, they can make you sick. Um, so... The, the process by which it gets into the chocolate is different for each one. Cadmium is being absorbed into the beans from the soil. So this probably has more to do with like overall pollution that cadmium is seeping into the cocoa. Uh, the lead is actually probably a little easier to troubleshoot. What they found is that lead was on the outside of the beans and probably was from lead dust. Well, dust that was settling on the cocoa beans while they're drying and lead was in that dust. So there are probably some manufacturing processes that could be troubleshot, troubleshooted, troubleshotted, <laughs> in order to fix that. Trouble blasted. Um, either way, you can look, like Consumer Reports did a breakdown of like which which different chocolate brands had the highest levels of cadmium and lead and which ones were actually okay. Um, so there's a wide variety. Fun list to look at, by the way. Like, oh, we have that. Oh, Ooh, we have that. Ooh, we have oh, that. I have that. I have that. Oh, no. I think right now it's in that sort of realm of, like, I'm not going to tell. One, you don't need to avoid all chocolate based on these reports. Nobody's recommending that, at least, as far as I can tell. They do recommend that you eat dark chocolate in moderation, that it shouldn't be. What did a Cookie Monster talk about? A sometimes food? <laughs> yeah, dark chocolate should be a sometimes food. Yeah, and like I, I think that they are recommending that you eat it in moderation, especially right now while we're still figuring all this out. Certainly if you choose to, to be, avoid it. It was supposed to be good I know, it was supposed to be good for you. And there are still good things about dark chocolate. Um, there are healthy properties, but— That you have to now balance with the presence of lead and cadmium. But the problem is we don't know. And so like I, there were questions like about people who are pregnant or people who are— breastfeeding, what could the implications be? We have no idea. Um, I would say you don't need to go get chelation therapy or go get um, lead or cadmium levels drawn just because you eat dark chocolate. If you are ill and you go to your doctor and they evaluate you for a variety of things and they suggest, hmm, this might be consistent with heavy metal toxicity and here's some tests or whatever, and then they recommend that, sure. But I would not get that test just because you eat dark chocolate and I certainly wouldn't go get chelation therapy. There's a lot of pseudoscience around chelation therapy. It's a real thing. Some people need it. There are a lot of people who use it who absolutely do not need it. It is not necessary. So I wouldn't go do that, especially if somebody's doing it for like profit. Mm-hmm. There are people who will just do that. And I oh, wouldn't. Sure. Yeah. I imagine my surprise. Um, 
So I, I, the science is out. I don't have a hard and fast answer for you right now because it's all pretty new. I would say that for me personally, as a lover of dark chocolate, I am going to um, moderate my dark chocolate intake. I'm not going to avoid it completely, but I'm also going to be a little more uh, picky about which brands I eat and how often I eat it for now until, until there's more data. And start looking for dark chocolate to advertise itself as being 100% lead-free. Guarantee. Within the lead next, and cadmium-free. Lead yeah, and cadmium-free, you will definitely. And then you're going to have missed this story, and then you're going to think, why are they <laughs> Why are they saying that it's lead and cadmium? Well, of course it's lead and cadmium-free. Why are they saying that it's lead and cadmium-free? And then <laughs> you'll go down the rabbit hole. Uh, here's another question for you, Sid. Good day. I was listening to the appendicitis episode and had a weird medical question. When I was, a, I'm going to try to pet Amelia. Hold on. Nope, no dice. Uh, I had a weird medical question. When I was 11 or 12, I had my appendix removed. I was told that it could grow back. Is this real? And could I get appendicitis again? Thanks, Valerie. So your appendix cannot grow back. Do not worry about that. That is not something. I looked to see, like, has there ever been even a single case of this? And I couldn't find any evidence that this is ever... This, Never, it doesn't make sense thing. to me that it would happen, and I, can't, I couldn't find a case where that had happened. What can happen if you ever read of a case of a recurrent appendicitis, what is actually occurring is an appendiceal stump inflammation, meaning where they made the cut to remove mm-hmm. the appendix, they maybe left a That's little all. bit of tissue there, Okay, and that can get stumpitis. Stumpitis. <laughs> So there are there have been Is documented cases of, no? of just no of just where where they removed it there's still a little bit of that tissue left and then you can get another a recurrent appendicitis there but it is not because your appendix has regrown that is not something that happens. Hi Justin and Sydney. I burned my tongue on a spoon that had been in a brownie that just came out of the oven. Look, I have ADHD and cannot defend my choices. And my roommate said that they heard from someone that eating straight table sugar is good for tongue burns, but they couldn't think of a scientific reason for that to be true. They also said that some other people talk about putting butter on burns, but that would probably make it worse, not better, because the layer of fat would prevent it from breathing. Is this legit? Either of these? Why do people think these things? That's from AJ. So um, I don't know. I I tried to find a lot of um, like other references for the eating sugar for a burn or putting sugar on a burn. I couldn't find a ton of that sugar, or I should say specifically honey as a sort of form of sugar, has been put on all sorts of wounds and burns and yes. skin problems for as long as we've known about it, right? So the idea that people might use that doesn't shock me. Um, when it comes to the butter, that one I've heard, and that one I can tell you is not a good idea. Wherever your burn is, do not put butter on it. I've heard that one too. Yes. There is a concern that it would actually like sort of create a coating over it and allow it to continue to burn, allow damage to continue to occur. Um, and so you should not put butter over a burn. Best case scenario, it does nothing. You know, so I, I wouldn't, I don't do that. Don't put butter that, or least... sugar. There would be no reason to put sugar on a burn. I don't, I don't know why people would think to do that, but you shouldn't. The reason people think these things, I think, is because if it's fun to eat sugar, <laughs> specifically with butter, my best guess is that it probably feels soothing in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so I think, like, if you look at stuff that's stuck around through history, if it, we always say if it makes you, if it makes something happen, if it has an effect, people will keep doing it because they think, well, it did something. 
you know, and a lot of a lot of old fake medicine did nothing. So this did something. If you if your butter's cold and you put it on your burn, it probably felt nice. And so I think something that felt soothing was probably the best case you also at the time. See, you also see a lot of these like uh, kitchen staples. I think used uh, in these sorts of like first uh, unconventional first aid treatments, just because you had a parent in the kitchen <laughs> and the kid was burned. It's like it would be nice if this was like, what do we have on hand? What is readily available that we can try to put on it? And well, I think that that doesn't it doesn't hurt. That's a common thing that you have on hand. Yeah, you I want to feel like you're doing something. Well, I mean, think about like a piece of raw meat on a bruise or something. Like if you're if you're trying to bring down swelling and so you want to put something cold on something that is swollen, that is legit. So you grab a steak because it's what you have, I guess. I don't know. These are very fancy people who all have steaks lying around. For us, it's usually a bag of peas. Um, but no, please don't put butter or sugar on burns. Um, these will not be helpful and could be harmful. Hi, Sydney and Justin. I went to a chiropractor a few years ago, and when they took x-rays, it showed that one of my legs is slightly shorter than the other. The chiropractor explained that this is likely genetic and passed down from my mother. It made sense to me at the same time. My mother and her sister both have hip slash knee issues on their right side. My mom's about to get a hip replacement. However, I'm curious if this type of leg length discrepancy is actually genetic. If so, is there anything I can do to prevent the issues my mom is having later in life? Thanks. Love the show. Francis in ATX, which is Austin, I believe, right? Is that ATX? I, th- I think. What do you think ATX Yeah, is? I think that it feels like that Austin, feels right. right? I scoffed a little bit there because I didn't understand why one would need um, – an x-ray to see if one leg is longer than the other. It seems like that wouldn't require any sort of imaging technology. No. I mean, I guess it depends on how obvious I guess the discrepancy is. Right? Yeah. It is something that can just happen. You can just be born with a limb length discrepancy. That is, that is, uh, you know, congenital, meaning it, it occurs at birth. Um, that can either be because one bone is actually shorter on one side than the other. And so they are, Genuinely two different lengths. Sometimes it's like a functional limb length discrepancy and it has to do with the way that like the joint itself, like your hip is functioning. It's like something can be contracted, the muscles that pull on the bones, the various things that connect, the tissues that connect to the bones can pull it so that it is actually, it is functionally shorter even if like you took the two bones and laid them side by side, they'd be the same length. Does that make sense? It's being pulled in such a way that it's functionally shorter. That can also be, Part of the problem, um, I looked up to see if we know for sure that it runs in families, that it has that genetic predisposition, and I couldn't find a lot of evidence of that. I'm not saying it doesn't. Certainly it could, um, but it, it it is just something that sometimes randomly happens. What I would say is that, you know, one, I would actually go see an uh, your primary care provider would be a great place to start. But a referral to an orthopedist, especially one who specializes in that area, would be something I would recommend um, over a chiropractor in this case who would not be trained in treating or appropriately evaluating these sorts of situations, especially if it is something you've, you've referenced. There might be family members who need surgery down the road. Um, if, if that is something that you are concerned about or if you are having significant symptoms as a result of this, you need to see somebody who is qualified to assess you and make those sorts of decisions as to whether or not you might need a surgery. And that would really be, I mean, I am a family doctor. I can do lots of things. I would send you to an orthopedist to evaluate those sorts of issues. So if okay. it's causing you problems, um, I would ask your primary care provider about it 
maybe they have some more imaging or studies they'd like to do and they could send you to an appropriate referral would be my my thought. This is from Hannah. Hannah says some nice things about the show and then says, every day after work, I meet up with my kind and well-meaning neighbor to walk our dogs together. Anytime I bring up anything to do with health or wellness, she also often has an at-home remedy to recommend, like putting on wet socks to bring my, down my daughter's fever. Now, usually I just ignore it and move on. Recently, she started mentioning stuff she's that's just wild, like putting her whole family on a week weekend-long parasitic cleanse. How do you broach the subject for what she's talking about is completely made up? Do you have any techniques for combating this kind of misinformation? I consider just sending her the Sawbones episode about it, but I feel like that might be too straightforward. Uh, any help you can give would be great. Signed, Hannah, the nosy neighbor. I, I really appreciated this question because I feel like it's a lot of what we try to do on the show, right? Um, but in all honesty, as much as I can provide information and I have training and schooling that gives me expertise, a personal relationship with somebody is often going to be much more persuasive or beneficial to changing someone's mind or helping correct misinformation. Um, that, honestly, leveraging the relationship you already have with this person, any, like, trust or closeness that you have is going to be the best tool you have in that effort because people don't change their minds about stuff because you give them a stack of data or even a link to a podcast. And I know I'm, I realize I'm saying don't share my podcast. <laughs> I'm not saying don't. I'm saying I don't think sending them a link to our show would make a difference as much mm -hmm. as I would love to say it would. Yeah. Um, if you want, if that's a, if that is a helpful support to say, let's listen to something together and then you can and, and make secretly unbroken, have picked one. Let's listen to one together and make unbroken eye contact for 30 minutes. No, no. But like if you have secretly chosen an episode that you think would be per, like would be directly. But I, I mean, honestly, the best thing to do is to recognize that a lot of people who sort of fall into these traps and I mean, there are wellness traps, there are crunchy traps. There are mm -hmm. lots of different versions of what this looks like. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, you need to acknowledge that they probably have their family's best interest at heart, right? They're probably not trying to harm anyone. I'm not saying no one is, but for the most part, no one's trying to harm themselves or their families. Nobody is trying to do something that is dangerous. They genuinely are trying to do the best they can for their, whoever is their family, kids or whatever. Um, and they have been misled and they are misguided, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to redirect that aggressively. You can't beat them into doing the right thing. I mean, verbally beat them, I guess is what I mean. You know, you're not going to talk them out of it. You're not going to debate them. You're not going to argue them into doing something different. What, what you do- Gaslighting, nagging. <laughs> nagging is huge. You find common ground. <laughs> You find, you find common ground. What you do is you find the things you agree on. You both want the best for your families, I'm sure. You both are trying to sort through all the information that we're inundated with all the time to make the best decisions we can. Here are some things that you found that work for you and your family. Here are some things that are some sources that you have found reliable that you think are good. Here are some ways that you have found to address those issues. Oh, I can see why you would think that. 
Um, that makes sense to me. And I know you're always trying to look for the the best, you know, the healthiest food to feed your kids or the the healthiest way to address that issue. I can totally understand, you know, I've tried this and this has worked for me. Those sorts of emotional connections, uh, aligning yourself with someone and saying, we're on the same team, but we've come to different conclusions. And maybe if I show you why I came to my conclusions in a kind way, in an open understanding way, you'll start to come to those same conclusions as well. That is a much more powerful tool to change minds and help lead people away from dangerous misinformation than um, cold hard facts or data is ever going to be. And that's a lot harder to do. It's it's lots of small conversations that ease people in that direction with no judgment and no anger and no laughing and no mocking. Um, and that's hard. You're going to have to bite your tongue a lot. <laughs> that sounds too hard, actually. And I don't think I would be able to do that. I'm actually thinking about it. Definitely couldn't. I don't have the patience. I can barely do it with our children. I don't think I could take the time to shepherd a stranger away from crystals. Uh, you got to You have to build trust with them. It takes it does. It takes a long time. But you could slowly do that if, if it's something that you and I mean, this is not your job. <laughs> you don't have to do this. Okay. But if it is something that you feel passionately about, and if it's someone who you want to have a genuine relationship with, if you really value this person's friendship and you want to, you know, share the things you know with them, it might be worth the effort. You think we take a break? Or yeah, yeah, let's take a quick yeah. break. And then we'll be back with more questions. Okay, Sydney, give me the line. Let's go to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier then you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to. Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool. Think of it as the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the Easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real, high-quality, chef-crafted stuff 
that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I mean, filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're going to talk about pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. If you have trouble falling asleep, try sleeping with celebrities. Tell me about your view of, of succulents. I'm not a... I'm not a huge fan. It's a different kind of sleep podcast. There are some real benefits to parking illegally. Featuring remarkable guests and unremarkable topics. There's two Orlando airports. From the creator of Depression Mode with John Moe, it's Sleeping with Celebrities. Every week on Maximum Fun. Nighty night sleepyheads. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say Bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy brothers every week for My Brother, My Brother, and Me. Dear Dr. and Mr. McElroy, how do I get a good primary care doctor? I grew up poor. My parents were a bit off-grid, so I haven't had a regular doctor since I was a baby. In college, I could always go to the campus health center, but that was only for urgent issues. Now I have my first actual adult job with insurance and everything, and I'm not sure how to go about uh, finding the medical care I need. I'm sure I could just call up a doctor's office and ask, but I'm afraid they're going to be annoyed that I don't know what I'm doing. Worse, I'm scared that I won't be able to find someone who's gender-affirming and won't be judgmental about my weight. Is it just a process of trial and error? Do I just have to go with whatever my insurance covers and call it a day? Any advice is appreciated. Much love. Milo. Milo rocks those they, them pronouns. And that sounds hard. That's a tough (laughs) question. It is is hard, and it's harder than any of us. Wait, no, this is actually easy. Ask Sydney. (laughs) <laughs> that is my solution. Well, I mean, I, my answer is, is not going to be incredibly satisfying because I don't 
and I'm not asking you to tell me this, Milo. I don't know where you live, <laughs> and and so I, I don't I don't know all the resources available. We in can't your help area. you without your social security number, Milo. Just send it our way. <laughs> no, I I if you if you live in Huntington, I have lots of answers for you. Yeah. Um, but if you don't, I, I probably don't have direct answers to this question. Generally speaking, this is first of all. Let me acknowledge this is a really challenging process for a lot of people. Um, you're not alone. You're not silly for not knowing how to do this. Most it's, people don't. Hey, y'all, straight up, can I tell a story from my own life? Mm-hmm. I have a carpal tunnel pretty bad in my wrists, and I have to get shots in my wrists, like steroid shots, to to make it so I can still use my hands. And I didn't know, like, and I've had these before. I went to a doctor. I called the office that I had gone to previously, and I didn't know... But I had put it off for so long because I didn't know what to say, right? I didn't know if I needed to talk to my primary care doctor first, and I didn't know if I needed to call their office. Uh, and, I, I mean, obviously you told me what to do, but, like, had you not been there, like, I put it off for quite a while. And then when I finally called, they're like, you put it off for so long, it's going to be six months before we can get you into the shots. My hands hurt right then. So it's it's even if you're married to a doctor, it's it's, like, really intimidating. I don't know why it's so... It it's is. so confusing. It is. And the steroid shots gave you hiccups for a couple of days. Oh, man. Which I didn't is a whole tell you all about thing. this. We yeah. got to do an episode about this calamity. Yeah. That's a whole other weird thing I that can happen. I had really, really bad hiccups yeah. for days. For two days. I didn't yeah. slip. Days is plural. Plural. <laughs> two days. Days. Plural. So, so yes, it is. And nights where I didn't sleep because of the hiccups. <laughs> and in, in this country, unfortunately, one of the first places you do have to start is to figure out who is in your network, who your insurance carrier will pay for you to go see because obviously you can see who you have, whoever you want but if you see someone who is outside your network who your insurance doesn't cover you're going to end up paying out of pocket and that can be very expensive it can be a few hundred bucks just to see the doctor before you have gotten any studies done or paid for a medicine you might need or whatever else you might need so a good place to start your insurance provider should give you a list of doctors and network it may be available online which would be an easy way so you don't have to make a phone call because I hate making phone calls personally. But that would be a good place to start. And then you have a list that you know at least is going to get paid for. Okay. Um, when you call a doctor's office, nobody is going to be annoyed that you don't know what you're doing. They're just sitting there doing their job. Nobody's annoyed. Nobody knows what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing half the time when I call my own office to do stuff for like our family or my kids or whatever. Nobody's annoyed. They're going to ask you some information you might not know, and that's okay. If they ask you immediately about insurance stuff, I would have your insurance card handy. They might ask you who your carrier is, although normally they just ask, are you insured? I mean, they're probably going to want to know your name, your birthday, your phone number. And then they might ask you if you have a preference as to like, I know at our office they'll say, do you care what gender your provider is? Um, and then they'll give you an appointment. So it's probably that phone call is probably going to be very low stress um, when you actually do it. In terms of finding specific. Oh, I'm already pretty stressed <laughs> with the what gender provider do you want? I will stare blankly at you. There is no correct answer to this question. I have no idea. Most pe- I will say most people don't care, but when they do care, they want a female. When they care, they care a lot. When they care, they want a female. I mean, almost. Oh, well, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that. now I'm not saying nobody prefers male doctors. This is not, I am, I am a cis woman. I am speaking for myself only in this moment. There are people who call and ask for female send us, a, send us a woman doctor. Mm-hmm. Send us a lady doctor. Send us a lady doctor. Um, anyway. The uh, the insurance is a big part of it. Making the phone calls not that is not going to be as bad as you think it is. I promise. 
Um, the other piece of that, finding someone in your area who is gender affirming or specific concerns you have, that's trickier. I know in our area, for instance, we have um, a resource guide that was made up as a partnership through Huntington Pride and Branches, the domestic violence shelter, um, that shows like LGBTQ uh, sensitive providers. It's a good place to start probably providers. to f- see if there's a group like that in your in your area. Yeah. I mean, so looking to see if there are, if you do have pride organizations or other LGBTQ um, advocacy organizations in your community, they may have lists. They usually do of people who are like either like here are vetted resources or even just like comments. Like I know I went to this person and they were good at this person, you know, so sometimes you have to do that. I wouldn't just randomly look for health reviews online because those can be all over the map. Um, But if you look specifically to organizations like that, they usually put together, we have statewide organizations and local organizations who have resource guides that will say, here are gender-affirming providers in your area. Um, So I would definitely look for those organizations um, as references and then sort of like cross-reference that with your insurance coverage Mm -hmm. list. Not bad. Word of mouth too. I mean, if you if you know people who have similar concerns mm-hmm. to you, just seeing you know what they've heard or what doctor they see might be a good. I know none uh, of the kids use Facebook anymore, but it's a common Facebook post you'll see. Mm. So, <laughs> um, hi, Justin and Doctor Sydney. I know someone who's way too into TikTok and occasionally said things that don't seem super connected to science. Recently, they said I should stop using Liquid IV and electrolyte additive for water. Uh, because it, it has unmethylated B12, which if you have the MTHFR gene, which sounds like a social media way of saying a bad word. That's um, what we always said in med school, too. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, uh, also, that kind of B12 may be generally bad for you as well. I couldn't get something specific from them regarding what it was that was bad uh, or what it causes or how you would find out you have the gene. I was just curious if any of this is true, what the difference in methylated B12 the good vitamin, apparently, and unmethylated B12 is. I love the show and really appreciate your research. Thank you so much, Jill. Generally speaking, here's what I would say. So First Jill, of all, Jill wants to know if Jill can keep using um, liquid IV in their um, their uh, The electrolyte their additive. In, your, <laughs> in their borgs. <laughs> this is for a borg, isn't it? No, okay, I, Jill. I, I am not... Uh, aware of any danger specific to that product. I've never heard of that issue. A lot of the times, it, whatever the vitamin... Fair, fair dinkum, though. Didn't know about the lead in the chocolate until a few days ago. When it, when it comes to B vitamins, the nice thing is if you, if you are taking an unnecessary B vitamin, generally speaking, you're just going to pee it out. Now, obviously, everybody can push everything. Humans will try anything. So is there an amount of B vitamin that you could take that I would recommend against? Sure, I'm sure you could come up with that. But generally speaking, if you're taking extra B vitamin, you're just going to pee it out. You see, you'll have expensive pee, and that's it. It is not one that is fat stored in your body. It is water-soluble, so it's just gone. Most of us, especially if you've had like your B12, B12 levels drawn and they're fine, you... You don't need any specific kind of vitamin supplement. And we do not recommend at this time like broad testing for the MTHFR gene. That's not necessarily something that we need to do. We don't do that standardly. Um, If people have certain problems like blood clots, that might be something we look for. Uh, But otherwise, that is not something that you need to. I would not lose a lot of sleep over this. I would not worry about it. And I don't know of any specific health concerns 
with using that product. I, I wasn't able to find any anything. Hello, long-time listener, first-time weird medical question asker. I actually have a few. Why does hair sometimes grow back curly after chemo? My mom always had straight hair, but grew back curly and fluffy after she finished chemo. I heard it was anecdotal evidence in other places, but I'm wondering if this is a real documented phenomenon. That's from Caitlin. Uh, it is. It is a real documented phenomenon. Your hair, not just curly, it can be curly, but uh, after chemo, your hair can grow back in different than it nor- than it did previously. You know, it can be thicker, fuller, different texture. All of those things can change. Um, it is usually the, so chemo affects fast dividing, fast, fast dividing, fast growing cells. So that's why you tend to have side effects like losing your hair or some diarrhea or nausea or vomiting because it affects the GI tract and your hair cells as well. Mm-hmm. Um, those drugs can continue to persist in your body and impact things even after you stop taking them. It just takes a while for them to be completely out of your system basically. And so that is why those hairs that first start growing in are still being impacted by that. So they're different. Over time, the expectation is your hair will start growing in the way it used to. That is generally what happens. Um, A lot of that can depend on exactly what chemo regimen you're on, how long you're on them. So when your hair grows back and how it grows back and if or when you can expect it to look like it did before, all of that is very variable. Your specific oncologist would have a lot more information because they would know about the agents you're on. But that is definitely a real documented phenomenon. Uh, Hi, Sydney. I love the show and hope you're doing well. My weird question is, should we reduce fevers when we are sick? It was my understanding fevers are an immune response by our bodies to fight infections more effectively. So isn't trying to reduce a fever counterintuitive? Thanks, Nick from Pittsburgh. That's a, that's a good question. Um, I can understand uh, why a, a lot of people ask this question. And there are a lot of people who are afraid to treat fevers for this reason. Um, what I would say is, first of all, there is no reason to think that your body is not heating up to an extent that, like, it's eliminating germs through heat killing them. Does that make sense? It feels like boiling the water. Yeah. You know what I mean? A boil water advisory, like, to kill off the germs. No, that's, I mean, it's part of a whole inflammatory cytokine pathway that does lots of things. It's doing lots of things in your body to fight off the infection. It is not just heating you up to kill off the germs. If we heated you up enough to kill off the germs, we would kill off other things. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. We have a lot of stuff in us we need. Yeah, exactly. So, so we're, ma- it is- we're mainly microbes. <laughs> we're basically back. We're at least equally microbes. Fair. But I would say that on the flip side of that, so it's okay to treat a fever. It's fine. You're not harming your immune response. On the flip side, we do tend to over-treat fevers, I think. I think we have sort of this fear, especially in kids, if a kid gets a fever, and I've been that parent, it's scary. Mm-hmm. And it it can make you feel like you need to hurry, hurry, hurry and do something. So I do think there's a tendency, I'll hear a lot of people say like, well, you got to alternate the ibuprofen and the Tylenol and you, you keep that fever down, keep that fever down. No, I mean, you do, it is not generally necessary to eliminate all fevers. There is, of course, an extent to which we, when it gets high enough, we are concerned and we do want to treat that fever or... Maybe they need to go in and be seen mm-hmm. if you're that concerned. Um, so I, I think that there's a point here where you're like, yes, every time I, every time someone has a temperature of 100, we don't need to throw medicine at them. Um, but it is fine to treat a fever. Okay. 
Easy. Take the recommended dosing that's on the bottle and according to your health conditions and all those other things, of course, too. I, I feel like I should – is that is that understood? Yeah. Don't just take medicine willy-nilly. <laughs> Uh, why do we need sunlight to get vitamin D? I feel like most minerals and vitamins you get from food because you're actually eating the vitamin, but sunlight is just photons, not like there's some vitamin D molecules in there. That's from Lorelai. Uh, Justin, do you know about vitamin D, why we have to get sun? I do, but I'd like to test you to oh. see if you know. Do you know? Yeah, I don't want to spoil it for you. Um, we need, so, okay, you can get vitamin D from food, of course, or from supplements or whatever. Milk, right? Milk's high vitamin D? Yeah, milk, milk has vitamin D for sure. Um, but you also, your body will make vitamin D from cholesterol in your skin cells. Okay. So there's cholesterol in the skin cells, UVB rays from the sun, hit that cholesterol and change it to turn it into vitamin D. Really? Yes. That's weird. Yep. How do we figure that one out? Yeah, and you, I mean, there's a whole chemical pathway that it goes down where it starts as a form of cholesterol and ends up as vitamin D. I, um, I don't care what— But that, like, is why, that is why we say you need sunlight. You're not absorbing vitamin D directly from the sun. You're absorbing UVB rays, which cause a reaction in your body that turns cholesterol into vitamin D. I don't care if you're or a religious person, an a-religious person, a, 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 a hardcore— Anything, no matter what, whether you believe, you, you know, whatever you believe, can we all just collectively as a people take a moment to appreciate whatever force brought us to this point that one day this force was like, I don't know, they keep dying just right away. And then they were like, I got, hey, listen, I know I don't speak up at these meetings a lot. I got a wild idea. What if the sunlight turns cholesterol to vitamin D? And was like, that is wild. Let's try that. That's a wild thing to happen. Should we do it with other vitamins? Nope. Just this one thing where they the sunlight turns cholesterol in the skin to vitamin D. What a wild play that was. What a what a swing. You know what? What is what is wilder, Justin? Is that the way this as a scientist? The way this happened was incredibly slowly over oh, the course make this more boring of thousands of years yeah. where creatures that had this ability to u- utilize the sun's rays to convert cholesterol into vitamin D in their own bodies had an evolutionary survival advantage over those who didn't. Um, probably because we need vitamin D. You know, for yeah, but do yours. Is, do yours is a skit. It's nothing. I mean, that's not a skit. Mine's a skit. I know. Yours isn't a skit. I think that's it. I, if you cannot see the like, it's just beyond comprehension that over time it is. It is. I mean, it is. I mean, I understand. I mean, it is comprehend. I guess it. it we can. I There's just explained no, it. But like, it is. It is incredible to think about. But that no is how we system. You cannot evolved. fathom. <laughs> you to this point it is unfathomable it is it is an incredible process but that that is why creatures that gained this ability through evolutionary changes were had a survival advantage over creatures who didn't that's why the sun has to be involved and of course there's a lot that comes with that we've done a lot of shows on sunscreen and sunburns and you know the the risks of overexposure to the sun we're well aware of that um but there is a degree to which some sunlight is necessary. That's the other fun thing about it. That's the other twist that the spin they put on it. Like, yeah. well, too much vitamin D makes them super powerful. I'm like, okay, well, we'll just 
it'll make them burn if they get too much sun. Well, actually, they won't get super powerful. Now, vitamin D, unlike vitamin B, is something you can get too much of. Okay, Sydney. So don't just take. That's not. Don't just go out there swallowing vitamin D nonstop. You can that accumulates. That's a fat soluble one. I'm sorry, big D E A and K. Those are the ones that you can just keep accumulating in your body. Um, I listen, folks. I we don't have enough time to answer this last question. Big podcast says that we got to clear out the studio, but I'm gonna. You know what? Forget about it. Forget the man. I'm just going to do it anyway. Okay. Uh, hello, Sydney and Justin. Why are some babies born jaundiced? I was talking to my mom the other day, and she mentioned I was born jaundiced. I was kind of shocked. It had never come up before, but she was like, don't even worry. It just happens to newborns sometimes. No big deal. But typically, jaundice is a pretty big concern, right? Seems like it'd be extra scary for a totally fresh new baby. <laughs> uh, that's from KC. So as they then pronounce. it is, you're right that a lot of times, especially in adults, uh, jaundice is a big deal. Jaundice meaning yellowing of the skin probably usually is the result of accumulation of bilirubin, which is something in your blood that can be caused from the breakdown of was, blood cells. I thought that sounded like a lounge singer from the 70s. Bilirubin. Yeah, I'm bilirubin. <laughs> they love, love to be here in the cat skills always a treat. And if, uh, if you're having, especially as a sign of liver dysfunction, this is when we worry. When we see jaundice, we generally are worried Billy about Billy Rubin would be jaundiced. Liver. Don't you feel like Billy Rubin? Billy Rubin would life. be, yeah, he would be jaundiced. Um, in babies, the reason we say it can be no big deal is that early, early in a newborn's life, their liver may not be like functioning at 100% quite yet. It's still like ramping up. Um, and they have a lot of red blood cells, too, that are being broken down. That combination can lead to neonatal jaundice. Um, so it is it is incredibly common that a newborn might have jaundice. It's estimated six out of every ten babies develop Aww, jaundice. So that's weird if you don't have jaundice. If you're born prematurely, eight out of every ten. All right. Well, um, only, only about one in 20 have levels high enough that they might need some sort of treatment. And the initial treatment— for newborn jaundice, if you need it, which is why, by the way, they monitor a newborn at first, um, both with this thing called a billy meter, which is just like an external meter that can give them an estimate of how high the bilirubin might be, and then they can actually draw blood and check bilirubin levels if they're worried, um, if the if you're looking kind of yellow. Uh, but the uh, the treatment, if they do find that it's too high, which is, again, why they monitor, so it's okay, they're watching for it, is... Um, UV lights. Oh, cool. Because again, the yes. UV light can help break down the bilirubin. Man. Isn't so that weird. cool? So, so, so cool. So if you've ever walked by a newborn nursery and you see a baby laying in a little baby tanning bed and they put like little baby, like these little so soft, they're not goggles because it's like a soft thing that they just sort of put over their eyes to protect their eyes and they just lay there in these little baby tanning beds. But if you ever see that, that's what they're doing. They have blankets that it's also release be. this, that, that also have this UV light so you could even take them home with a Billy blanket. Wow, for the baby man. Like, so this is life, huh? This is what, okay, all right. But if sure, you ever heard like the Billy lights or the Billy blanket, that's what they're talking about. It's just to reduce that. And then your liver starts functioning up to snuff and then you're fine and you don't need to, you know, continue that. But that is why, generally speaking, it is no big deal. There are cases where newborn jaundice could be indicative of some other underlying problem, which is why we watch it closely, which is why we check levels, which is why we treat it, which is why we monitor. Most of the time, mm-hmm. it is no big deal. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Uh, a couple of quick plugs. First off, 
Um, the Adventure Zone is a graphic novel series that my brothers and dad and I wrote. Um, the fifth book just came out last Tuesday. It's called uh, The Eleventh Hour, The Adventure Zone, The Eleventh Hour. If you haven't read the series, uh, I'm really proud of it, and I think it's really good. So if you would go buy that book and read it, that'd be really nice. Also, March 17th, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard, uh, we are going to have a My Brother, My Brother, Me live and virtual show celebrating uh, the 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 kickoff of our 20 Sun and Sea year of touring. Uh, we're going to have a very uh, cool young podcast called Sawbones opening for that show. Maybe you've heard of it. Tickets are $10. It's March 17th, 9 p.m., uh, the video will be on demand uh, for two weeks after the event. You'll be able to watch it, or you can pick it up for two weeks after the event. Go to bit.ly forward slash M-B-M-B-A-M virtual and uh, come watch. It's going to be great. I'm certain of it. Right, Sid? Absolutely. Uh, and we'll be there, you and me. Yeah. Uh, assuming our children go to sleep. <laughs> I'm, hope- uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. Thanks to the taxpayers for the use of their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And thanks to you for listening. We appreciate you very much. That's going to do it for us. Until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. All right. Yeah. org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.